My name is Stuart McCray. I have the joy of serving on staff here as one of the pastors, and I have the delight of bringing us God's word, uh, God's word this morning. And so we're going to be continuing in our series in Esther. So if you'll turn to chapter 2, chapter 2, we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 2, verse 19, through all of chapter 3 this morning. While you're getting there, here's a story from an old Sports Illustrated. The clock starts when Mikhail Riley catches the ball, 24 feet from the basket, down three points with two seconds left in the game. He runs off a screen from the left baseline so his momentum carries him toward midcourt. He pushes hard off his right foot and pivots back to the left. When Mikhail rises off the floor, the force of his hard cut is still carrying him left. One second remains. Mikhail shoots. The ball is still airborne when time expires to end the game. The shot hits the back of the rim. The ball rattles around and it suddenly leaps out. Sails toward the backboard, hits the center, and falls through the net. The game goes over to overtime. Now, this shot doesn't ultimately change the game's outcome, but eight minutes later, on the evening of March 14th, 2008, a tornado rips past the Georgia Dome. 14,825 people who would have otherwise been outside in the path of the tornado were inside safely instead. One of the most precious truths from the Bible is Romans 8:28. We we know, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. That's right. This speaks to God's providence. We, we can know objectively, because his word says so, that he is always at work for the good of his people. Now that said, providence operates but behind the scenes, and as such, it is only clearly discerned in the, in the rear view mirror, in retrospect. It's true in Mikhail's life, more on that in the end. It's true in your life, it's true in my life, and it's true in the book of Esther as well. Now, now the advantage that we have with Esther is hindsight. We know the end before the beginning. We, we know the end as we're reading through this account, just as the original audience and whom Esther was, was given to. They, they too knew the, knew the end before the beginning. They, they knew the end as they were reading the account. You see, in part, this story of providence was to bolster their faith, bolster their trust in God, right? I mean, it's one thing to know the, the, the truth claim of God's providence. It's, it's another to be able to, to see it. It's faith-producing, and we want to see God's providence in retrospect in Easter. We're not going to play coy as if we don't know the end. We know the end, and we want to, we want to leverage that so that our faith can be increased. Because as we're in our lives where God's providence is hidden, we, we want to be able to. We can take heart that the same God who was at work then for his people is the same faithful God who is at work for his people now, today. And so we're going to work through our portion of the story, 219 through chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at God's providence in retrospect. As you'll see in your sermon notes, this account uh, has three scenes that are kind of based up on the, the, the timing. So and I, I, 
I trust as we see God's providence and rest of respect, especially when it seems like God is, is absent, that, that our, our faith will be bolstered. All right, so let's read the first scene, chapter two, starting with verse 19. When the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther still, still did not reveal her family background or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she had while he raised her. Let's, let's pause there. So two quick notes. The phrase Mordecai was sitting at the gate is an idiom that lets us know that he now holds an official officer position in the city. This is like us saying that the judge is sitting at the bench. Two, Esther is yet still described as being a passive participant in this story. That was things that Doug well highlighted last Sunday. That's, that's true right now uh, in this account as well. All right, let's keep reading uh, verse 21. Now, during those days while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigtan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. And so these eunuchs are the secret service, right, to the king. They, they are there to guard him, and yet they become infurious and, and plot to assassinate him. Now, the, the footnote in the CSB tells us that plan to assassinate literally means and they sought to stretch out a hand against. So let's, let's note that. We're gonna come back to that in a moment. That's important. All right, let's continue. Verse 22. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was invested, uh, investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. And this event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. Now, if God's providence wasn't clear to us in the last two accounts, uh, I mean, the, the, the last one, the, the, the king gets rid of his wife, the queen, and he puts on a beauty pageant. And it just so happens that Esther is in the city of Susa. And it just so happens that she's extremely beautiful. It, it just, I mean, if you haven't seen the providence, well, in our section this morning, it just oozes and is just dripping on every situation and in every scene. Somehow, Mordecai just happened to be at the right place at the right time to learn of the assassination plot. Now, there might have been many reasons why Mordecai might not want to have uh, intervened and foiled this plan uh, for this pagan king, but Mordecai acted in obedience to God who told the exiles uh, in Jeremiah 29, seven, pursue the well-being of the city that I have deported you to. Pray to Yahweh on its behalf because when it thrives, you will thrive. So Mordecai gives the report to uh, his niece, Esther, who just happens to now be the queen. And she takes this information to the king, giving Mordecai credit. And the eunuchs convicted are then hung on the gallows. Now, the, the two big, big ticket items here are what, what the narrator says does happen and then what doesn't happen. What does happen is that there is a, a full accounting of this in the historical records to include most specifically Mordecai's actions and foiling this plot. And they are recorded in front of the king. That's what does happen. 
What doesn't happen is Mordecai is not honored for saving the king. Now, this might not seem much to us, but the uh, uh, ancient historians will tell us that Persian kings were, were, were quick, were quick to richly reward acts of loyalty, and yet nothing happens. This, this scene ends on a surprising note. Somehow, Mordecai just happens to be at the right place at the right time. It just so happens that this hypersensitive king who, who just recently got rid of his queen, his, his wife, because she, she didn't honor him, just happens to forget to honor the man who saved his life. But, but these aren't mere coincidences or happen chance of an oversight. This is God's providence. This is God's providence, meticulously on display. Now, now Mordecai in the moment, he may well be asking, what's going on? What just happened here? I, I could have used the, the, the bonus or the promotion that would have come through this honoring. Where are you, God? But God's hand isn't hidden to us. Later in chapter six, at, at just the right time, the king will have the historical reg, records read to him because he can't, he can't sleep that night. So maybe the records will help him to fall back asleep. And it, it just so happens that the records that are chosen are the account of what Mordecai did. For which the king will inquire what, what honor or special recognition was given to Mordecai. And the Mordecai is honored. God orchestrates God orchestrates Mordecai's delayed honoring so that at just the right time when things are at their most bleak, it would become a crucial part of God's providential deliverance. Now, now we've all been like Mordecai. Okay, not, not, most of us haven't stopped an assassination plot, but... but but we've all been like Mordecai in the sense that we, we've all taken faithful steps in obedience, trying to do the right thing, and then things don't work out like we thought they would. Or, or maybe like we thought they should. The, the good that we endeavor just blows up in our face. I mean, there's the little things. Have you had the experience where you, where you have tried your earnest to encourage somebody, but then it's taken as an offense? Now, on one hand, there are many reasons for why. But on the other hand, none so fundamental as God's providence. Ephesians 1.11 says, God works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. And in case you're wondering, and sorry to get very technical here, but everything in the original language means everything. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, it, it is said that every day and in Every circumstance, God is working 10,000 things in your life, but you may only be aware of three. We don't always understand what's going on in our lives, but we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Look, most times we don't nor won't understand how God is 
doing that, but listen, to not understand how God's providence is at work does not mean that he is absent or uninvolved. The book of Esther, this this story of providence is designed to bolster our faith and empower us to take faithful steps in obedience even when it seems like God is absent. Right, because the the same God who was faithfully at work then is the same God who is faithfully at work now. And let me just say in addition, people may and will forget the things you do in obedience to God, but he won't. Things may not work out like we thought they would. Hebrews 6.10 says, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name. Things may not work out in the moment like we, like we thought they would or should, certainly not like we were thinking, but God is faithfully at work. And so good news, we don't have to build our lives and our obedience around outcomes. Better news, God has already accepted you in Christ. Our God is at work behind the scenes for our ultimate good. So knowing this, we can be enabled, empowered to take faithful steps in obedience. All right, let's look at the second scene. This is uh, verses one through six in chapter three. Now, now quick setup. Esther is filled with reversals where, where we, we think one thing will happen and then a completely opposite and surprising thing does. Sometimes this is... Uh, good to bad, sometimes this is bad to good, but Esther's filled with reversals, and arguably this is probably the first one, and there's a couple in our section, and they keep moving on from there, right? We expected Mordecai to be honored. He wasn't, but someone is. Chapter three, verse one. After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. So, so Paul's there. So Haman is our final main character in this account, and he is introduced as an Agagite. He's a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Now, this is important. This is both factual and strategic in the writing. Last week, if you recall, uh, the narrator, and Doug pointed this out, introduced Mordecai as a Benjaminite, which meant he was a descendant of David, uh, a descendant of Saul. So maybe you're already connecting dots between uh, Agag and Saul, or maybe you've forgotten the dots, or maybe you're, you're, you're new, so let me connect the dots for you. In Exodus 17, not too long after um, God rescued his people and brought them out of slavery in Egypt under the oppression of Pharaoh, they're in the desert, and the Amalekites attack them, seeking to wipe them out. They first start with the stragglers in the back, but their goal was to wipe out God's people. Well, as a result, God curses them and orders the Israelites to wipe out the Amalekites when they come into the promised land. God God saves them in the moment from the Amalekites, but then curses them and orders that the Israelites take them out in the promised land. So fast forward, They're in the promised land, and King David, now the first king of Israel, is given the command to execute the orders. Well, Saul disobeys God. He 
He wipes them out, but, but he spares King Agag. And so Saul's sinful disobedience allows this bitter antagonism to ensue. Let me, let me just make this clear. Haman is here because of Saul's disobedience. Just, which there is just so much in this passage that, that we, could, we could tease out and we just can't do it all. But, but just, this is just too good though. Sin. There is past sin in your life that is still that still has its tentacles where you're at right now. Maybe it's the past sin of somebody else that's still having effect on your life. You see, what we see here, though, is sin does not thwart God's providence. All right, we got to go on. So Haman is an Agagite, and to make that really clear what that means, then in verse 10, he's called the enemy of the Jews. All right, table is set with some background on this character. He is an Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. With that in mind, we can now feel the full weight of the reversal. Haman the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, he is honored to the second uh, highest position in the empire, not Mordecai, one of the members of God's covenant community. Now we know how the story ends, spoiler alert, Haman dies. But Mordecai doesn't know that now. This is a bitter, bitter reversal of providence. All right, let's keep reading, starting with verse two. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day by day and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions will be tolerated since he had told them he was a Jew. Now it's important to note here that there's nothing idolatrous going on here. This is not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not bowing down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. This is just cultural etiquette. Think, think like Japan, people bow down to those in, in, in higher authority over them. Or maybe when a, a superior officer come, comes in and people, people stand up to honor. That's what this is about. This is a, a cultural thing. And then on top of that, the king commanded it. Okay? But Mordecai wouldn't have any of it. Everyone's bowing down. There's Mordecai, stiff as a boar. One of these is not like the other. Now his coworkers, coworkers notice, and they go and ask him, what's the deal? It, it doesn't seem like they are out to get him because they go to him, right? They don't, they don't go above him and go straight to the boss. They, they go to him. In fact, the text says they go day after day trying to inquire what is going on here. Evidently, Mordecai says nothing to them, except at some point he mentions he's a Jew. There is no way to know if they know the history behind all of that. In other words, the connection between him being a Jew and uh, Haman being uh, an Agagite. There's no way to know that. And so at the least, we can think that maybe they interpret Mordecai as offering some sort of like religious exemption. Well, after days of pressing Mordecai, they do go to the boss. And again, we don't know why. Maybe they want to know if a religious exemption is acceptable because they want one too. 
We just don't know. We do know that they go. And verse five, follow along, when Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned that Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ashuerus' kingdom. Now, you know, I don't think we said this before, but there is a sense where Esther can also seem like a dark comedy. We, we see these instances where it is just sadly comical of what's going on. Haman, evidently so consumed with the adulation of others paying him homage, never notices the one guy who never bows down. It takes the coworkers to inform him. And then when he finally comes to that knowledge, he is enraged by the dishonor. This is an honor-shame culture. He is outraged, he's, he's angered at the dishonor that's being shown. What's more, now Haman knows that Mordecai is a Jew and the blood feud boils, right? Haman not only wants to kill Mordecai, that wouldn't be enough. He also wants to kill all Jews living in the empire. Now, one last comment, and then we'll, we'll, we'll look at some reflection. Verse six says, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone, literally to stretch out a hand against. Remember the earlier footnote? Mordecai, see, Mordecai saved the king from having a, a hand stretched out against him, and was not honored. And then the man who is honored now wants to stretch out a hand against Mordecai, but not just Mordecai, all of Mordecai's people. Devastating injustice. The reversal is complete and it's jarring. Can you imagine Mordecai's reaction to this turn of events? Mordecai and Haman represent something bigger and the original readers would have seen this. These men represent the ongoing spiritual conflict between God's people and the powers that seek to destroy them. You see, Mordecai's problem wasn't really Haman. It was the powers that were behind Haman. And that's true for us today as well. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 says, be strong, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For this reason, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of its darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Family, God's people are still in a spiritual battle. But this side of the cross, we have resources that, that Mordecai couldn't have fathomed. We have Jesus who strengthens us by his vast strength. We, we have the full armor of God. What's more, huh, we can stand against the schemes of the devil because Jesus already stood victorious against him. 
remember the original readers of Esther read this part of the account in light of the end, in light of the victory at the end. So spoiler alert, in God's providence, the very gallows that, that Haman will erect to kill Mordecai on are the very ones he dies on. And insofar as these men represent a spiritual conflict, they, they point us forward to the greater conflict. Oh, Satan must have thought that the cross would defeat Jesus. But in God's providence, it is the very instrument that brought victory. Nothing about the crucifixion of Jesus was outside of God's providence and predetermined plan either. Acts 4, 27 through 28 says, Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. Karen Jobes says, it was not in spite of the greatest injustice and most concerted evil against Jesus that God achieved his work of atonement, but through those very acts of injustice and evil. What mind-boggling mystery. God's absolute sovereignty is displayed magnificently in the great paradox that even Satan's wrath and retribution, working through worldly powers, is nevertheless constrained by God's eternal decrees. God works concurrently through the very forces that Satan means for evil to bring about his perfect good. You see, if God can providentially bring about our greatest need of salvation through the injustice and evil of the cross, then he can work together all things for those who love him. So family, whether you're facing injustice, suffering, trials, relational conflict, the, the promise of God to work all things together for your good is yes and amen in Jesus. All right, let's look at the last scene. This is uh, verses seven through 15. This is gonna talk about Haman's, Haman's plan. How's he actually gonna think about carrying out this, this, this plot of Massacre. First, it's determining the best date to carry it on. Let's read, uh, this is in verse seven, follow along as I read it. In the first month, the month of Nisan, in King Ahasuerus' 12th year, the pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman for each day and each month, and it fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar. Pause there. So Haman throws lots. He, he's basically throwing dice to figure out the, the most... Uh, advantageous day to carry out his plan. In the ancient world, uh, dice were thrown not for gambling, but for divination, to, to kind of ascertain uh, answers uh, from the gods. And so the best day to carry out the massacre is 11 months later in the 12th month. The second part of Haman's plan is to necessarily convince the king to approve it. And uh, lying and bribery will be his strategy. I'm going to make some comments as we go, but let's start in verse 8. Then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, and, and he starts off with the truth. There's one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. And then he moves to a half-truth. Their laws are different from everyone else's. And now it's just an outright lie. And they do not obey the king's laws. And it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. There's his argument 
Here's his proposition. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction. And then here's, here's the bribe. I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury. Did you notice the deafening silence of the king? No questions, no statements, silence. He just passively sits there until verse 10, follow along. The king removed his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Verse 11, then the king told Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with as you see fit. Ashawaris is a terrible king. He's ill-tempered, passive, controlled by sinful desires. He's just foolish. We've seen that already and we'll continue to see that he is just a blundering fool. I mean, he temporarily abdicates his throne by passing on his kingly authority by giving Haman the, the ring. And in effect, now Haman has the kingly power. He can do whatever he wants so long as he has the signet ring. Ashwars is a terrible king. I mean, he's already been, there's already been one assassination attempt on his life because he's, he's a terrible king. And indeed, in 465 BC, after, after the Esther count, he will be assassinated in his bedroom. More eunuchs will, will make it happen. He's a terrible king. All right, follow along. We're going to read the rest, verses 12 through 15. So the royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces, and the officials of each ethnic group, and written for each province in its own script to each ethnic group in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the royal signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, annihilate all the Jewish people, in case they didn't understand what all meant, young, old, women, and children, and plunder their possessions in a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. Verse 14, a copy of the text issues at, issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the peoples so they might get ready for that day. The couriers left, spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink. Well, the city of Susa was in confusion. So the letter with the massacre plan is written and it is sent out throughout the empire. Even the Jews receive it. But, but for them, it was a, a foreboding message of a death squad coming. Have you ever received that, that letter, that email, that text, that call you never saw coming that just turned your world upside down? Haman sends this letter out 11 months in advance. Why? Well, the text mentions that there was some sort of readiness of the people but it wasn't a problem of the government. 
Ancient historians will tell us that the Persian government and communication with the empire was very efficient. So he didn't do it because of that. Maybe there was some, some planning of, of people, but 11 months in advance. I think there's great, great reason to think that he wanted to cause the Jews more agony as they sat there and waited. There was nowhere for them to escape within the empire. They were marked out at this point. The empire was basically one large prison while they're sitting on death row. And there's one thing I glossed over. When Haman threw lots, we're told he did so on the first month of Nisan. And when the scribes are summoned to write the decree, we're told that it's the 13th day of Nisan. The, the, the author, the narrator, is uh, using the Jewish calendar, okay? Nisan just happens to be the month the Jews celebrate the Passover. What's more, the 13th day just happens to be Passover Eve. Friends, these are, these are true things, historical things, but the, the narrator is making sure that we see these things so that we can feel the bitter providence. Passover is the annual feast celebrating God's deliverance of his people from the oppression of Pharaoh. Now, now on this month, this day, they receive the decree that is for their deaths by the oppression of Haman. We can only imagine the intensified agony at the discover of this bitter reversal. Doubtful there's an appetite for feasting now, but someone does feast. The end of the text says the king and Haman sat down to drink. This was a colloquial expression that there was a banquet or a feast that happened. The reversal is complete. Their, their great feast is spoiled. But the enemy of the Jews is feasting. What is God doing? What can God be doing? What better providence in the moment? but the readers know the end. We, we saw lots, lies, and letters. Lots, lies, and letters. What, what are we to do? What are we to, how are we to think about those things that are outside of our control? We, we left with just hopelessness and our conspiracy theories of what, why, and how. Is our only comfort our anxiety? I and mean, what's coming at you right now that's just completely out of your control? What about chance? Coincidence? Luck, karma. Again, Ephesians 1.11 says, God works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. There's, there's no chance. There, there's no coincidence. There's no luck. There's no karma. Nor is this deism as if there is a God, but he is far off and removed and does not intervene in the lives of his people. 
there is God. There is God, the one who works out everything in agreement with his will. You see, what Haman didn't know about casting lots was Proverbs 16.33. The, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. What most symbolizes chance or, or luck for us, the Bible says God decides. By God's providence, the dice land just so. Even the superstition and ma malice of Haman is under the providence of God. Providence, uh, Proverbs 21.1 says, a king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. The, the, the coincidence of the decree coming down during the Passover is tragically ironic. And the, the readers see the, the, the providential irony as well, because in the providence of God, this will only heighten his future deliverance. Again, Karen Jobs eloquently says, God works mysteriously patiently and inexorably through a series of coincidental events and human decisions, even those based on questionable motives and evil intents. All the chance events in life are really working toward the end that God has ordained. God's providence and our perception of it has been likened to tapestry. Maybe you've heard this before. Where our lives, just like the back of tapestry can appear to be a mess and nonsensical chaos. But God promises that he is at work, taking all the threads of our lives, the, the good, the bad, and that he's making something beautiful. Something that we're, in the end, when we when we can look back on and see the front, we'll see that all along, God was creating a masterpiece. Listen, if God isn't gonna leave dice up for chance, then we can know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Let's, let's look back to... Uh, where we started. Let me finish this article from Sports Illustrated. The author writes, each life turns on a trillion silent hinges and every act has an infinite series of prerequisites. For Mikhail to be where he was and to do what he did, an incalculable number of things had to happen just so. Before he could play for Alabama, he had to quit two other colleges and happen upon a third. Before he could play in high school, he had to wash sweaty uniforms and sweep the gym floor. And before he could learn the jump shot, a gunman had to kill his aunt. But with the life insurance money, his grandmother built him a basketball court where he learned to shoot hoops. When later asked about his aunt, Mikhail simply responded, I don't question God's decisions. Seeing God's providence in retrospect is it's faith producing. 
because we get to see that the same God who is faithful to his people and is working then is the same faithful God who is working in his people now. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the moment, oh, it can feel like God is absent. It may feel like he is working against you. Feelings is not what is promised. It is that we can know that all things work together. The story of Esther, the story of the Bible, reminds us that God loves us and he is at work for the good of his people. We, we see this time and again in the scriptures. God providentially delivered his people from Egypt, but, but only after Pharaoh's oppression, only after the plagues, only after they were pinned against the Red Sea with no way of escape, but God made a way. God providentially gave victory to his people over the Midianite army, but, but only after dwindling Gideon's army from 32,000 to 300, only after giving them the ridiculous battle plan of just making loud noises and holding up tor torches, and only after that, that ridiculous battle plan threw the Midianites into a frenzy where they killed themselves. God brought victory, and his people didn't have to lift a sword. We're not the end of Esther, but we know God providentially delivers his people. Even more, the story of Esther points us forward to Christ's death, where again, God providentially uses the greatest of injustices to bring about the greatest of redemptions. But here we are, stuck between now and then. But just like the original readers of Esther, we too know the end. We, we know for our own lives that God has promised to providentially finish what he started in us. And in the end of everything, we know Jesus will return and have final and full victory over all of his enemies. And, and in a sweet reversal, God will wipe every tear from our eyes Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because these things will have passed away. So between now and then, brothers and sisters, let's, let's together hold on to the promises of God. Let's, let's together review God's providence in our own lives, in each other's lives, in through history, through God's word, we want to be reminded that the same God who was at work then is the same God who is at work now in the lives of his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that in your providence, this word is preserved for us so we could better come to know you and know what you've done for your people throughout time what you've done for us in Christ and what you're calling us to do and be by your grace. We're praying, oh, we need your help. These things can be easier said than done. We need your empowerment through the Holy Spirit that lives within us to, to take faithful steps in obedience, living life together, reminding and encouraging each other of, uh, of not only your present evidences of grace in each other's life, but also past evidences as we celebrate uh, 
things that we can look back on in the rearview mirror and see your providential hand at work. Uh, we love you. We thank you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.